0: This is Speaking of Faith's Unhurt Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with journalist and scholar Robert Wright. He's the author of several books, including The Evolution of God. I spoke with him on February 2, 2010, in front of a live audience at the Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. This interview is included in our program, The Evolution of God. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org.
1: Uh, good evening. Welcome to the Cole Center at the uh, Humphrey Institute for Public Affairs here at the University of Minnesota. My name is Michael Barnett. I'm the Staff Professor of International Relations here at the Humphrey School. If I could ask a few favors from you before we begin. The first is, if you would please turn off your cell phones or just check to make sure they're turned off. Uh, we're doing uh, live taping here and live streaming, and so we don't want any interruptions. But I'm also told by the producers of uh, Speaking of Faith that they don't mind if you tweet. Uh, this is not something I'm aware of. Um, but turn off your ringers, ringers as you do so. Okay, so for those who are tweeting, you might want to raise your hands. Uh, this is, I, I, is going to be a special evening, I, I suspect. Uh, tonight, uh, with, a, with a special taping of... Speaking of faith, here at uh, the Humphrey Institute, Uh, Krista Tippett will be interviewing, speaking with Robert Wright. He has – this is one very busy guy. Uh, Let me just sort of run down the various activities in which he's involved currently. He's a senior research fellow at the New American Foundation. He's the editor-in-chief of Blogging Heads TV – He is writing a regular column for the New York Times online site. Uh, He's a contributing editor for the New Republic and a contributor to Time and Slate. His articles have appeared over the years in places like the Atlantic Monthly, the New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine, and Foreign Policy. His opinion pieces regularly show up in the leading newspapers of the world. He's the author of several award-winning books, uh, including The Moral Animal, non-zero, and of course, most recently, and the reason for his appearance, the evolution of God. Uh, He is widely respected, as I was preparing for tonight, uh, stumbled across some interesting uh, aspects. Just to give you a sense of, in, in many ways, the subtlety and the importance of the mind, last year he was named by Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the world's top 100 thinkers, Because of the body of his work and the importance of evolution of God, and I quote from the excerpt, uh, this is according to Foreign Policy magazine, uh, citing Wright, God is becoming more angelic, more patient, tolerant, and compassionate. Just ask Wright, author of Evolution of God, a dazzlingly well-researched new book that traces how social transformations are reflected in popular conceptions of the divine. And there were 100 thinkers. He was... Number 27, right in between Eleanor Ostrom, who recently won a Nobel Prize for economics, and just ahead of Aung San Suu Kyi, who has also won a Nobel Prize for peace several years ago. And importantly, he is 20 positions ahead of Christopher Hitchens, the author of God is Not Great. So uh, in that rivalry, he's doing okay. The Evolution of God is a fascinating book, and for those who don't have a copy, there's, you can buy yours outside afterwards, and, and Bob will be delighted to sign it for you. It is, a, in many ways, a, a spectacular reinterpretation of religion and humanity's relation to God, beginning uh, not simply with, with Judaism, but going back to hunter-gatherer societies and shamanism, uh, moving through ancient Judaism and then Christianity and then Islam, and then takes that bold interpretation of humanity's changing relationship to God to speculate on how it is that we might develop interfaith tolerance in a world of rampant globalization. The book's important materialist inspired interpretation of political theology has one right considerable praise. Especially for the boldness of the argument and the clarity with which he delivers it. Although there is one aspect of the book that I do want to mention, which is, and this for me is, is one of uh, the important dimensions of, of Bob's writings, is the sly sense of humor. And to capture that, I had to go back and there was an interview he gave, gave with Deborah Solomon for her weekly interview piece. Um, If you're familiar with it, in the Sunday New York Times, Deborah Solomon always interviews some major figure. It's always been my personal hope and dream to someday be interviewed by her. Uh, But, at least I know somebody who was interviewed by her. She says, your approach to religious history is so nakedly materialist. For instance, you claim the Apostle Paul was a kind of marketing guru who dropped the more demanding requirements of Judaism like circumcision and dietary restriction, to attract more followers. And Wright's response, do the math. How many Christians are there today, and how many Jews are there? If his goal was to gain a large following, he seems to have made the right tactical decision. So there is, in, throughout the book, there is uh, immense speculation about what might have been in different kinds of historical and theological puzzles. But it's always written, I, I think, in a very down-to-earth Manner that makes it accessible to many of us. Bob will be interviewed, of course, by Krista Tibbett, the creator and host of American Public Media's Speaking of Faith. And I just want to note, uh, she's an acclaimed author in her own right and is also due to have her own book released on February 23rd, according to Amazon.com, where you can get a pre-publication copy if you want. Uh, That book is called Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit. So um, be on the lookout for that. Before we begin, though, I have to thank many institutions and individuals that have made tonight possible. First off, to the Speaking of Faith uh, staff and especially senior producer Colleen Sheck. I'd also like to thank here at the Humphrey Institute, Jeremy Gordon and Camille Gage. In addition to the support that we've gotten from Humphrey and the staff of Speaking of Faith, The event is also being made possible by a generous grant from the Luce Foundation. They have been providing us a grant to explore various dimensions of the relationship between religion and humanitarianism over the last several years in an attempt to try and promote a more nuanced, complex, and sensible understanding of the role of religion in world affairs. And they're the ones that in many ways have made this, at the very least, financially possible. So uh, without further ado, if you would help me welcome Krista and Bob to the stage.
0: Hello. I want to thank Michael, where are you, for that introduction. I'm thrilled to be at the Humphrey Institute tonight. Um, I thought you might mention that it's caucus night. What I wanted to mention is that it's lost night. (laughs) And we did hear that the White House, that one of the possible dates for the State of the Union was tonight, but the White House lost its nerve. We did not. Um, And I'm really glad to be in a room full of people who are um, here for another hour and a half to talk about things more important than what happened when that bomb went off at the end of last season. But I'd also like to say a word of thanks to the god of DVR and TiVo that we can really have it all. (laughs) Um, I want to welcome everyone here and welcome all of our viewers who are watching our live video stream. I want to thank you for joining us. And we're also going to be welcoming your questions. You can submit them. Um, I'll talk about our questions here in a minute. Um, You can submit them starting right now by clicking the Ask Your Question link on our homepage, which is speakingoffaith.org. The protocol in here will be uh, that Bob and I will speak for about half an hour. And I think you you had cards on your chairs when you came in. Sorry. So we'll uh, have a conversation for about a half an hour. I will signal for People to come collect those cards i 'll give you a heads up and uh, then we 'll talk for a few more minutes and we 'll have a conversation with you um, I have we 've been planning this and trying to plan it <coughs> sorry for a couple of months and i am really I 've really been looking forward to it and I 'm happy okay. that we 're finally here um, Robert Wright 's books are uh, not only thought provoking but wonderfully written, and that combination does not always occur. Um, and I want to note, as we start, something that I did not know about you, um, is that you were born in Oklahoma. True. And you were raised Southern Baptist. I was. Did you know that, that both of those things are true of me as well?
2: Really? Yeah. That's eerie. I know. So there is, so there is a God then. So, well, the, the, it's proof of something.
0: I'm not sure what. Okay.
2: Couldn't be chance.
0: <laughs> After that self-indulgent beginning, um... I mean, really, what are the odds of us sitting here at the Humphrey Institute that's, that's talking weird. about the evolution it's, it's, of God? It's kind of scary. Um, you know, uh, uh, some important words as you analyze the human condition of the religious enterprise are purpose and meaning and truth. And I'd like to ask you um, how about the sense of those things, of purpose, meaning, and truth that you had. In that Southern Baptist upbringing in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and then I think Texas uh, later on.
2: Yeah. Well, the, yeah, there was no doubt about the source of purpose, meaning, and truth when I was a Southern Baptist as a, as a child. Um, I had a very uh, kind of pervasive sense of, of God's presence, I guess, um, and, in fact, at age 8 or 9, uh, I, I chose to walk up to the front of the church and accept Jesus as my Savior. My parents weren't there, and there was no, no pressure from them at all. Um, they, they were devout, but they, I later found out that they actually worried that I wasn't ready to make a decision like that. Um, uh, so I was, uh, you know, I was quite religious.
0: Okay. And then you've written somewhere that um, at some point you were bowled over when you learned about the power and beauty of the theory of evolution. Tell me about that.
2: Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, for I mean, for starters, I should say that because my parents were creationists, certainly at that point, um, there did seem to me to be a conflict between Darwin's theory of evolution and religion as I understood it. Um, and... Uh, I remember asking my mother about, you know, what about these, like, dinosaur bones and stuff, you know, when I was 12 or 13. But it was when I was a sophomore in high school that I really understood the theory of natural selection. And it is just a beautiful, in the sense of, of powerful and elegant, um, theory. Very, very, very simple principles can, in principle, explain tremendous complexity. That, that's what, you know, intellectual elegance is. And it's 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 funny it, it's you know science some scientists will tell you that that it's almost almost a spiritual or at least aesthetic experience to really appreciate a theory's
1: mm-hmm. power.
2: But that certainly set up um, some tension within me. And I know my parents actually brought over a minister to the house when I was in high school to try to convince me that evolution hadn't happened, um, or at least at a minimum he was arguing that it well something something totally inconsistent with modern darwinism he was arguing for sure and
0: so it was in direct conflict with your parents understanding of this but did you immediately see it as an as an absolute contradiction
2: i must have because i know in high school i was i was like the village atheist okay in in, in san antonio texas it, there weren't that many avowed atheists yeah. i wouldn't call myself an atheist now but but uh, there were in high school, I was—that uh, was my little niche.
0: So, um, so one of the things that you that you say in the evolution of God, um, and you this becomes very nuanced in the course of the book. But you say that gods arose as illusions, and that the history you're tracing is of the in in certainly in one sense the of the evolution of an illusion, and. Um, You know, when did you first think that?
2: Wow. Uh, When did I think of it as the the evolution of an illusion?
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Let's see. Well, the title of the book was in place, um, you know, 10 years or so ago when I started kind of thinking about it and working on it. Uh, So I guess at that point the the idea was there. The, um, I mean, the, The question is, could it nonetheless be, even even if back when there were only hunter-gatherer villages, um, these were kind of flat-out illusions and and fictions and and people uh, and and just kind of extensions of of human cognition in in a context of trying to make sense of the the world... um, can't it be that they started out like that, but as um, kind of the history of religion advances, or at least cha- you know moves forward, um, that and people refine their conception of God, that eventually you could get closer to something that is actually the truth about God or about the divine or about something, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's one thing I'm, I'm trying to look at in, in the book.
0: Okay. So, what I'd like to do is, is talk about um, some of the overriding themes, some of the overriding story you tell, um, and some of the most striking observations you make, and original observations, and then, and then talk about what it all means, and we'll open that What It All Means okay. conversation up with you. Um, you do tell a very big story. You talk about religion from day one, and you go through... Um, the religiosity, if you want to call it that, of hunter-gatherers, uh, shamans. Shamans, right, are the first step, where's the first step towards archbishops and ayatollahs. <laughs> um, chiefdoms, and and get it, and then you get into monotheistic religion. Um, I think a very interesting way to talk about that um, is, and what you do in the book is you get at this... By delving into how the Bible itself, the Hebrew Bible itself, charts or kind of illustrates that trajectory, starting in the second and third chapters of Genesis with a God who is very human like walking in the garden in the cool of the mm-hmm. day and bumping into Adam and Eve. So talk about how talk let's talk about that story as revealed through the Hebrew Bible.
2: Okay. Well the first the first complication is that the the, the books as they appear in the Bible are not appearing in the order in which they were written. Mm-hmm. So your the second chapter of Genesis to which you referred was apparently written before the first. Right, and
0: it's not the same God. You're
2: right. In the and, first so you, and so you have a more manifestly anthropomorphic God uh in in the in the second chapter. Um and I should say that the, the, the uh the scholarship of uh you know that 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 kind of tries to figure out when the various books were written is, is not, these are not all matters of consensus, but I kind of went with mainstream views on this and did the best I could. Um, and y- you do see, you know, certainly over the longest haul, you do see a couple of things. The conception of God gets less anthropomorphic, um, not in any straightforward linear way, but but people think less of a God as a guy sitting on a throne, although that really seems to be, have been very much the original conception. Um, and then the other thing that's changing, and in a way the thing I was most interested in was kind of the moral tenor of God. How broad is God's compassion? Does God's compassion extend beyond the Israelites? Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. Uh, and I try to show that that, that conception of... Uh, that God's, God's compassion... Uh, is, is a function to a large extent of, of kind of what's happening on the ground in terms of political and economic things. And I, and I make the further argument that that's kind of good news in, in the following sense, that the the basic direction in which social organization moved, that is from, from hunter-gatherer village to chiefdom, ancient state, empire, and now we're on the verge of a globalized society, I'm arguing that that has... The effect that that's had on our conception of God's compassion has tend to, tended to be a good one. That, that as the world grows, uh, as social organization gets more complex, people get more interdependent, there, you see an adaptation on the part of God, and it does become a, a God of broader compassion. Again, not in a straightforward, linear way, in fits and starts. But I think you see it, and I try to tell that story in the context of, initially, the Hebrew Bible.
0: Mm-hmm. You also suggest, um, in a way that does diverge from the scholarship, which, as you say, is is diverse, but that that the Israelite religion was not monotheistic, not strictly monotheistic originally. You call it that. You said it was more of a monolatry, which was um, there was exclusive devotion to one god, but without denying mm-hmm. uh, the gods of others.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say. I would say actually it would, it starts as flat out polytheism i mean um you know solomon is is derided in the the Bible for having accepted the the altars of of, of many gods um and um and there, there are all kinds of 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 there's all kinds of evidence in the bible itself that okay. the people writing the scripture believed in the in the uh existence of more than one god and in some cases actually paid respect. You know, to to and to they know those a,
0: knew those other gods were around. I mean, Moses comes back down from the mountain, and yeah. those other gods have reappeared.
2: And the uh, you know, one, one, in one verse, I mean, to get back to the question of what what brings out the kind of tolerance in God, what makes people think of their God as tolerant? There's one case where the Israelites say to a neighboring people, you know, can't we get along? You've got your God Chemosh who gave you your land. We've got our God Yahweh, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and then, as you say, I think Israelite religion has to go through a kind of a phase between polytheism and monotheism of monolatry. In other words, you acknowledge the existence of other gods, but the insistence is that you only worship one. That's what monolatry is. And and I should say, I mean, the the, the scholarship uh, there are a lot of scholars who would who would go along with what I've said so far. I mean, if you get into the specifics of
0: I don't think it's something that scholarship tends to stress, though, the way you stress
2: no, it. No, a lot of this is not what people tend mm-hmm. to kind of stress. I mean, it's in papers that are in journals and things, but scholars uh, tend not to put it all together.
0: And so for you, God with a small g became God with a capital G, um, only in the Babylonian exile of the Israelites, yeah. which was 6th sixth, sixth century B.C.E.
2: I think certainly if you accept the, the kind of mainstream dating of texts, then the first unequivocally monotheistic declarations come in the part of Isaiah known as 2nd Isaiah. Scholars think that more than, there was one, more than one author of, of Isaiah, and the kind of middle, late chapters are known as 2nd Isaiah. That seems to have been written during the exile. It is unequivocally monotheistic. I, I am God, there is no other... And I do think it's, it's the, uh, the emergence of monotheism has to do with, uh, with the trauma that the Israelites underwent as a result of of the exile, and it was, among other things, a way that they made theological and even political sense of, of the trauma of exile.
0: And you're quite smitten with Philo.
2: I'm a, I'm a <laughs> Philo fan. You're a
0: Philo fan. And again, you know, Philo is someone who... Uh, scholars of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, write about, but you really emphasize him as bringing yeah. forward. Um, you know, here is where you you start to use your language of non-zero-sum. Uh, you write in one place, and he was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, first century BCE, he wrote, Philo's tolerance was non-zero-sum logic incarnate. So right. tell us what that means, so what you mean by things. that.
2: So I say a couple of things. Who was Philo? He was a... Uh a a jew living in the roman empire and very much influenced by greek culture at the time of jesus okay um and uh a word that was at the center of his philosophy that i I look at pretty closely was the logos um now when you read the bible in the book of john when it says in the beginning of the word was the the word in in the the new testament Mm -hmm. yes um, and remember, Philo is writing about the Logos as a philosophical concept uh, at, at, the, at the time that Jesus is, is alive and around the time that, that the New Testament is, is starting, to, that the earliest books are starting to take shape. Um, and almost certainly in John when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word that's translated as Word is the Greek word Logos. Okay, And almost certainly... Uh, that word was intended to have much the philosophical resonance that that it had for Philo. So, I, I, for a lot of reasons, I take a close look at Philo, and also another reason is that I think his theology of the logos is a is a pretty good candidate, f- as ancient theologies go, of a of a theology that could be viable in a in a in a, a, a modern scientific world because mm-hmm. it's it's not about. Um, Uh, an anthropomorphic god it's almost you can almost think of the logos as a kind of algorithm that motivates history and moves it toward somewhere and imparts purpose to it Uh, and the logos was thought of uh, by philo and others as as an instrument of god his instrument of intervention in in the in the physical world almost um, and to get to your, the non-zero-sum thing... But, there, which, was,
0: but it, there was behind that also a faith that there are orderly laws, that govern the Yeah, well, was the you know, philo was trying to
2: reconcile the Greek philosophy that, that he was encountering, which had a, a kind of that aura, kind of a mm-hmm. scientific aura, with his, his uh, Jewish heritage, trying to reconcile the Torah with, uh, with a kind of scientific outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's why he talks... About a God that's not anthropomorphic, and talks about a God that imparts this order to the universe. So the laws of nature are manifestations of divine will, and and a really interesting thing about Philo. We're getting around to the non-zero sumness yeah. part, which probably a lot of people here would just assume we didn't. But um, I'll try to explain. I don't think For we those, can
0: talk to you and not get to that. No, it's
2: hard. It's yep. hard. I'll try to explain what I mean by that, but. Um, Philo saw the world as moving towards greater and greater interdependence. And ultimately, as history is culminating in a giant like global society and, in fact, a democracy. And he, he saw that driven by the interdependence of people. The, 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 that society would congeal on a global level, he saw um, as being driven by the, the kind of need that people have for one another as a practical matter. They have to get along. Um, and this brings us to the, the, the term non-zero-sum. It's a term in game theory. Uh, in game theory, a zero-sum game is 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 a game like most sports where there's one winner and one loser. Their fortunes are exactly inversely correlated. So when you play tennis, uh, if a point, you know, if somebody gets a point, that's good for them and bad for the other one. Um, but if you're playing doubles. Then the person on the same side of the net with you is what is in what's called a non-zero sum relationship with you. So each point is either good for both of you or bad for both of you. So when you're in the same boat, when your fortunes are correlated, you're in a non-zero sum relationship. And you know, I I wrote a book before the evolution of God called Non-Zero that focused on that 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 saw this interplay of zero sum and non-zero sum forces as a kind of driving force in history. With the the upshot being that the world gets more and more, society gets more and more interdependent and interlinked on a larger and larger scale. I I argue that that is fundamentally the the impetus of history. It's built into the system.
0: So that win-lose scenarios make less sense for anyone, right?
2: Well, we always, I'm sure all of us can think of people with with whom we have kind of win-lose situations. We can think of rivals and competitors and so on. But I do think that over time, more and more people come into non-zero-sum relationships, potentially win-win relationships, with more people further and further around the world. Mm -hmm. And because I think that actually drives a kind of moral progress, that is to say, tolerance of other people, and I think Philo's a good example of that as well, some of his writing is, I think that's uh, among the evidence that maybe there is some larger purpose unfolding. And... uh, that's quite consistent with his, his, his philosophy. Um.
0: Um, just Let's talk about the New Testament briefly and a little bit more. Um, uh, Michael mentioned that you portray the Apostle Paul as a great marketing guru, but I think that the, the uh, analogy I, that struck me more was you called him the Bill Gates of his time. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to give you a few more words than you get in Deborah Solomon's column. To answer it you know what do you mean by that and what does that have to do with the evolution of God as seen in the New Testament
2: um, well it's, it's very closely related to what I just said about how expanding social structure leads to can lead to moral progress okay I, I take the view that the emphasis on a love that crosses ethnic bounds and national bounds did not emanate uh, was not emphasized by Jesus and is much more a product of paul 's ministry and of the expansion of the church in the Roman Empire throughout the Roman Empire after Jesus was crucified um, and I think it has to do with with paul 's uh, his you could call it his entrepreneurship, although I do think he was sincerely motivated i don 't think he was cynical uh, I think he was a believer, but I do think he had the ambition. Of um, starting an empire-wide church, and because the Roman Empire was multinational, that dictated if he wanted to weave together a bunch of Christians across the Roman Empire, that dictated uh, the the uh, that he emphasized a love that crosses national bounds. And I think that's where you know there's his famous line: "There is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, you know, all are one in Christ; neither neither male nor nor female, Mm -hmm. neither slave nor free." Um, uh, and elsewhere in his writing so what I'm arguing is that there you're seeing an example of when, when, when uh, social structure expands to this multinational level within the Roman Empire that actually, that fact generates uh, doctrines of uh, tolerance and even universal love um, I, I don't mean to say that it's inevitable that those doctrines went out and right now we're at a time in history where that's the question we are in a we are we are in a a situation of global interdependence we're we're certainly the rational thing for humanity to do is get along which would be abetted by doctrines of of tolerance and even love Um, and, and there are people who are on the job you know but that obviously there are forces working in the other direction Uh, And so the outcome is not clear. But what's interesting to me is that the world seems to be set up in such a way that either humans make moral progress in the sense of expanding their conception of compassion and, 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 and love more broadly, or they pay the price of social chaos and collapse. I really think the world is set up that way, and that's why I think it's not crazy to speculate that there's a purpose that merits the term divine.
0: So, you know, a lot of the things that you lay out um, about inconsistencies, uh, about really just about the complexity of the scriptural text. Mm -hmm. You and I did not learn about that complexity growing up. I don't even think my parents or my grandfather, who was a Southern Baptist minister, knew it. I don't think he learned it in seminary. Um, But the rabbis have known it across the generations. The church fathers knew it. New Testament scholars know it. Um, mm-hmm. It it it's something that's not passed on to the to lay people, but there's no secret about it. What I'm kind of leading up to in this is, uh, you know, your work is has been reviewed and discussed um, often in the context of kind of weighing into the new atheist, the energy around the new atheist debate. But I, I also think that that this book is a contribution. Weighing into um, another genre, you know, the books by Bart Ehrman and Bishop Spong in recent years, who are also religious thinkers who have kind of exposed this complexity, this this contradictory nature of the texts. Mm -hmm. Um, But done it in a way that raises questions about whether this invalidates the entire enterprise. I don't think Bishop Spong does that as much as Bart Ehrman. Bart um, yeah. um, and that's interesting to me because because as you just said, you know where you just came to you're laying it all out, the books are not written in the order in which they appear, they have different authors, um, there were all kinds of versions of Christianity. It, you know just at, just as in the history of Israelite religion there were all kinds of views of divinity um, in the early Christian world, um, but you're not saying that that negates the entire enterprise. You're saying what matters is what that it is that it's a reflection of the human condition, if you will, of the evolution of human culture, um, and that what matters is what people do with these traditions and these texts, how they see them.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, my, my account of the history of religion is, is materialist and, 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 and skeptical in the sense that it, it attributes all developments, you know, pretty much in, in theology and belief to um, <clears throat> kind of, you know, facts on the ground. Um, and I am not, I myself don't buy into any claims of special revelation made by Jews, Christians, or Muslims. At the same time, the, as you see the kind of the material system unfold, as, as I suggested, I, I, I do think um, it, it gives you reason to believe that there's something more going on here than than is obvious. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily some kind of interventionist force or anything. I'm just saying the whole uh, so my, my worldview would be compatible with kind of a deism, you know, the kind of the Enlightenment era philosophy that God wound up the clock. I, I'm just saying it, the system does seem to be kind of like a clock in the sense that it has the hallmarks of something with a purpose and with an actual um, moral direction. But you're right, I'm in an odd, I mean, I'm in a strange category. I kind of joked yeah. before the book came out, you know, it's one of the few books that can antagonize Christians, Jews, Muslims, and atheists. Um, turned out to be true I mean I would say Most of the critical email I got Was from either atheists or Christians um, And I will tell you The Christians are nicer if, uh, yeah. By and large I know some wonderful atheists But in terms of the <laughs> ones Who felt motivated to email me More of them were hostile and belligerent Than the Christians With the Christians It was kind of more in sorrow than anger For the most part oh. there, was, there was the occasional angry Christian I'm sure you've all seen them They're, they're out there
0: um, you bring your game theory back into this. Um, when you talk about, uh, again, in the sweep of these texts, there are violent impulses and there is the love impulse, right? There's yeah. kill your enemies and there is love the stranger, love your enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you say that I think speaks to a lot of uh, discussion and hand-wringing and, and genuine uh, anxiety that a lot of people have had about religion in the world in the last decade especially, you say that these texts in and of themselves, even the, even the violent parts, um, are not necessarily intrinsically uh, something that is going to cause violence. Um, it's going to that's going it's going to be, have to do with the person who's taking them on and so here here's your way that you phrase it with game theory when you talked about when people see themselves in a zero sum relationship with others, they tend to resonate with the intolerant side of scriptures um, that's also i think when they 're fearful, not just angry mm-hmm. um, when they tend to have a more non zero sum win win uh, attitude towards life, and also the confidence and security to have that, um, they tend to resonate with the tolerance strains in the, in scriptures.
2: Right. I mean, you know, this is a, although the book was, I had the book in mind before 9-11, um, and, and, and the basic ideas, it certainly, nine eleven gave it um, kind of more relevance, and one big question was, what brings out the worst in religion, what brings out the best? Right. Um, and some people after 9-11 went out and got copies of the Quran to try to understand what had happened. And, and that's not irrelevant to what happened, but I do try to emphasize that, you know, when people uh, people have a scripture, but they can pick and choose from the scripture what they want to emphasize. And, and that, you know, my what's interesting to me is what makes them choose that. And when I talked about ancient times and the question of what kind of mood is God in at a given point. Why these mood, these mood fluctuations between belligerents in both the Bible and the Quran. You have yeah. God at yeah, one the, point. Yeah, all seven. these
0: inconsistencies, is, everything I just said is true of the Quran as well.
2: Yeah, and, and, and what is it that, that, that accounts for it? Um, you know, the argument is, you put it in game theoretical terms, but in, in, uh, in other terms, you could just say that when people see other people as threatening, they're more likely to see their God as counseling belligerence toward those people. Um, When they see them as people they can in some sense do business with, people they can constructively interact with, they're more likely to see their God as counseling tolerance. I'm, I'm arguing that explains both the tolerant belligerent scriptures in the first place, and it explains what circumstances will make people interpret their scripture uh, in either a constructive or destructive way in the modern world. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, when you see President Obama at the beginning of his administration trying to emphasize that, uh, you know, that uh, the respect that he and Americans have for Muslims, that's an acknowledgment of that dynamic, that if people feel you don't respect them, that, then they are more likely to perceive you as a threat, and they are more likely to see, to go look for the parts of their scripture that would seem to justify violence.
0: You know, we started a conversation uh, on our newsletter, uh, inviting people to, and our website inviting people to send questions before this. And one person did write in from Virginia. He said, "I thought the non-zero idea was pretty good until 9/11. What does Mr. Wright now think?" So, I mean, yeah,
2: actually, that's a. uh, It's funny because not funny. 9/11 is not funny, but 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 the this was an issue with. I mean, my previous book, non-zero. Which was about. Was that
0: published in 2000? It was
2: published in 2000. And uh, in it, uh, I said, you know, th- there's this good part about the modern world, there's this bad part. Um, the, the same information technology that allows us uh, to cross national bounds and perhaps move toward, you know, global governance or whatever also empowers uh, small terrorists and allows them to organize, and there are going to be these increasingly um, lethal weapons at their disposal, and so this is kind of the big conflict. And that, and that was in, in the book in 2000. The book, when I saw people interpreting it as being so optimistic, I went back for the paperback, and this is still before 9-11 because mm. it's early oh one, and I rewrote the introduction a mm. little to try to to to, to bring out my... Uh, my uh, my pessimism a little, a little more, which right. everyone who knows me knows right. is there, and um, uh, so it's it's certainly not, you know, I, I I don't think I'm presenting a Pollyannish version of of the world, and and I no. want to emphasize how in doubt the outcome of this whole project is.
0: So, having let you establish that, mm-hmm. I also want to. Talk about the conclusion you reach about Islam in the evolution of God, which uh, does stand in a pretty striking contrast to a lot of the headline-driven wisdom about Islam that's waxed and waned since 9 mm-hmm. 11. I would say it waned for a little while, and it's waxing again as we get some really horrific, isolated incidences. Um, here's what you wrote about the sweep of that tradition, that scripture. In terms of forces conducive to amity and tolerance in human history, in no other Abrahamic scripture are they as evident as in the Quran. No other scripture so deeply cuts across the full spectrum of dynamics from intensely zero-sum to intensely non-zero-sum, or so sharply expresses the attendant moral tenor.
2: I mean, this is in a way a discovery that Islamic scholars made a long time ago. I mean, people who are themselves believing Muslims and are scholars of the Quran. It's, uh, they long ago set about dividing the, the, uh, the different parts of the Quran according to when apparently they were uttered by Muhammad. And you have these various phases of, of his career. The main distinction is between the verses in Mecca and the verses when he moved to Medina. And his political situation changed. Um, and, uh, and, and 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 they have noted the correlation between circumstance and the tenor of the verses. So they've uh, and and it's it's very evident, um, and it's just a textbook illustration of how circumstance drives your conception of God's will. Uh, so when uh, when Muhammad is is uh, trying to build a coalition of Christians and Jews, which he plainly is. There's no doubt that he's talking about the God of Christians and Jews uh, in in the Quran. Um, He's he's saying, you know, uh, know, the Hebrews are God's chosen. God chose them in his his wisdom, and he's saying, uh, you know, Jesus is the spirit of God. He can't quite go so far as to say Jesus is the son of God because in his mind that raises a polytheistic problem that actually others have noted and the Christians had to wrestle with. <clears throat> um I mean, he 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 can't say that 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 uh that, that Jesus is divine um and and yet a separate being from God. But anyway, then when relations sour, then he says, you know, don't have Christians and Jews as your friends because they are just one another's friend. In other words, they they won't do business with us. They won't they won't be part of my coalition. Uh they are enemies, so you know that's that's the way we'll be and and you see this fluctuation not just toward Christians and Jews but towards polytheists and uh th- throughout the quran it, it's uh so there's the whole menu of of, of verses there to uh to choose from
0: mm-hmm. I think it's a good moment to uh, collect cards. we have a lot more to talk about, but uh, if you have a question, uh write it down, and somebody will. Walk by in a few minutes, five minutes. You know, I, I know that you're not suggesting that, um, that this is the only way to analyze these texts and traditions. but Actually, I, it's I, the only way to analyze no, them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's pretty fascinating how actually um, constructive your materialist approach turns out to be. Um, and in some senses, validating. But I would like to talk a little bit about what gets lost when you do it that way. And one thing that I kept thinking about when I was reading *The Evolution of God* was uh, a, 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 a comparison that I that I really like that John Polkinghorne made. He's a quantum physicist and also, who also became an Anglican theologian later in life. And he talked about how uh, you could how there are, we need different forms of ways of seeing the world to understand the complexity of the world. And he talked about how um, <clears throat> you could take a beautiful painting and a chemist could analyze the painting and could take off the scraps of paint and tell you everything that was in them. And in the process, they would destroy the painting and w- would miss the point of the painting, That though they would discover some useful things. Right. Um, and I wonder if, if, if you th- thought about that as you were scraping off the... Um, um. The facts about this.
2: I mean, I was aware that that's the way it looks to a believer, what I'm doing. It's a a, um, totally materialist deconstruction of the history of religion. Um, As I said, what distinguishes it from most of those kinds of enterprises by scholars is that I'm arguing that after you do the deconstruction you see a pattern suggestive of some sort of larger purpose. Right. But I still, I recognize that the very mode of analysis is pretty left-brain, mm-hmm. and religious experience is thought of as is, is kind of right-brain, I mean, to, of course, stereotype these experiences. Um, and I can't, you know, I, I just can't help it, you know. <laughs> the uh, I mean, I've had, you know... I don't get into this in the book. I've actually done a couple of one week silent meditation retreats mm-hmm. in, a, in a kind well, of a secular it's Buddhist tradition. You're about um, and that takes me out of that mode. And in fact, it has been an extremely profound experience for me uh, and uh, briefly transformative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to keep those transformations going. Um, but uh, but I, I plead guilty. I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm a left brain thinker. Uh,
0: yeah, and I'm I'm not really trying to uh, condemn you either way. But I, I there's it's just that there is something else going on in these texts. Um, there 's truth of a different kind there 's wisdom about the definitely you wisdom. know there 's wisdom about the human condition in addition to it being a reflection of wherever human beings were when they were writing it yeah um, it 's po- you know a lot of his poetry, not journalism.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you look at me as if I wouldn't understand.
0: No, no, I know you uh, <laughs> understand. I know you understand. But so, okay, here's what I wanted. I guess I, I do want to get at whether there might be some different ways to, or just whether, some things you wonder if you've thought yeah. about this. So, you say that cultural evolution pushed divinity and hence humanity toward moral enlightenment. Would another way to look at it be to say that? Um, Human beings grew... Let's assume that there is a God and a moral God that you feel that there's some kind of moral truth that this is all pointing to That towards.
2: saves us time. Let's just assume... That let's assume it, okay. God, okay.
0: That human beings, in fact, um, have grown in their ability to, to comprehend that divine morality. Well, you know... A, so that that's a, another way of looking it, at what the story is in, in a sense, I to.
2: kind of am saying that without be, claiming to be sure whether there's a God or anything, yeah. but I am... I am arguing that kind of um, there is a moral order. There seems to be a moral order out there in the sense that the world is set up in a way to drive people toward. I would just I would say not just moral progress, but something that you could call moral truth. Right. So it, it is a story of humanity uh, growing intellectually, and it isn't. Uh, and sometimes it is intellectually driven. In other words, um, you know, there is moral philosophy. It's, it's, not, it's not just that, well, when it's in my interest to be nice to somebody, I'm nice to them. It's that the fact that we get that far and start thinking uh, in, in, in expanding the moral circle, and a lot of this, y- there's a book by Peter Singer called The Expanding Circle. A lot, a lot of this is kind of his argument, in a way, um, that once once... Human nature, by inclining us to be capable of kind of expanding our moral imagination to people when it's in our interest, puts us on this intellectual path where, as we think it through, we actually reach conclusions about what moral truth is. And so, you know, I I, I am I'm kind of arguing that that maybe history is set up to, uh, you know. To be revelation.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I also kept thinking of a conversation I had m- quite a few years ago with uh, a South African cosmologist named George Ellis. Mm-hmm. And he believes that, he's Quaker, and he's a scientist. He, he analyzes even social justice by way of mathematics. But he believes that there are, there are moral truths mm-hmm. um, that are embedded in the fabric of the universe the way the laws of physics are embedded in the fabric of the universe, Mm -hmm. which is to say, not there for us to invent, but to discover. Right. And he sees some of these core moral underpinnings that have different vocabularies and different practices attached to them but that recur in the great traditions as a kind uh-huh. of evidence of that. So that religious people across the ages have been explorers and excavators of that. And yeah. I think that's compatible with I what you're so. saying. I think so. And
2: and I think you know the fact that they show up in these different traditions, mm-hmm. um the the you know Buddhist uh, Buddhist scripture, the earliest actually a uh, concrete, you know, manifestation of Buddhist scripture occurs during uh, an imp- reign of the Emperor Ashoka in circumstances very much like the Roman Empire, and and it's good news to me if indeed this kind of growth of social organiz- of, of organization leads people toward toward moral truth.
0: And then another way to look at it would be through uh, the eyes of process theology, which you probably know, which which would say, in fact, that. God did change, right? That Mm -hmm. the God who people were writing about when they were writing the creation stories Mm -hmm. was not the same God who was there during the time of King David or in the first century when Jesus was born. And that God changes in relationship with humanity, which has free will. And, um, you know, relationship, I think, is also what gets lost in this materialist view because Mm -hmm. the story that's being told, I mean, especially in the Hebrew Bible, is not just of God evolving or of what's happening with human beings, but of that relational evolution.
2: Um, yeah, I don't know process theology as as well as I should. Um, but you know, that's a view. And then there is and then there is the view that that God is kind of evolving in kind of in us in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which, taken to its extreme, I guess, is uh, is a kind of pantheism that, that would suggest that the universe kind of is God. Now, I've never personally understood the appeal of pantheism. I mean, in other words, I've, I've never understood, um, you know, to say the universe is God, aren't you just giving another name to the universe? I mean, it seems to me that... Uh, Religion in the in anything like the traditional sense needs to mean a little more than that. <laughs> that we can rename the universe God, right?
0: Could you think about God actually changing? I mean, you really ta- you, re- you write well, in I, your book about a yeah. go- the scriptures talking about a God who changes radically. Um,
2: well, I'm talking about the conception of God the conception changing of radically. God, yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm not assuming that the conception in the first place had corresponded to something actually <clears throat> out there. I mean, I do not purport to know if God exists. I do believe that there's evidence that the system has a purpose. It, the purpose could have been imparted in various ways. Uh, uh, God is one way, but but I certainly, I mean, to ask me whether God may have changed is to mm-hmm. presuppose a little more confidence than I have. Okay. About the existence of
0: God. So I wonder, um, and this is my last question, and then I think we should start our conversation. Um, Is um, a conclusion that you have to draw from your work that the successful evolution of the traditions um, would mean that they have to relinquish exclusive truth claims
2: um I don't know if they'd have to relinquish all uh, exclusive you might be able to show me a truth claim they could hang on to as far as I'm concerned I mean you know if the if the world is to be saved you know if salvation is to come in the kind of Hebrew Bible sense of the term salvation where it's usually used to apply to a social system the salvation of Israel um then at a the minimal doctrinal evolution that has to take hold in all the great religions is tolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the bottom bedrock. That has to happen. They don't have to believe in the same God. They don't have to agree that they believe in the same God. I think that would be nice. It would be better. Um, and, 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 and you know, to the extent that there's the convergence of values... Right, like tolerance and so on, and the values that we need to get along to the extent that there's convergence on what moral truth is and what is good, and they believe that, that the source of good is their God, then they are kind of moving toward the idea that their God is, if not the same, you know, that, that, that there's some kind of meshing going on at that kind of theological level. Um, I mean, a, a, a concept that I emphasize near the end of the book is the idea of the Godhead, which is emphasized especially in in kind of Hinduism. Um, But it's the idea that the various different gods are themselves manifestations of an underlying divine unity. And uh, it's just at the surface level that they appear different. And I try to argue that, that that idea may be floating around the Hebrew Bible even after the exile when, again, to get concrete and materialistic and left brain when it is in the interest of the Israelites to get along with everyone because now they're part of the Persian Empire and suddenly you see this language that's more compatible with the tolerance of the of the beliefs of uh, of other peoples and even the hint that maybe they're all worshiping the same God
0: let me ask you a question about personal evolution when you when you walk down that aisle um, to commit your life to Jesus as a mm-hmm. Southern Baptist. What, how old were you? Seven, eight? Eight or nine, I think. Um, and then you had that experience years later at a silent meditation retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Were those experiences similar? Were they kindred?
2: Yes. I mean, first of all, I think in a certain sense, I, I, I was drawn to the retreat by a need for salvation that I think has roots in in my Christian upbringing. Um, as it happened, this particular uh, Buddhist uh, retreat was in a, in a building that had once been used, I don't know if it was for nuns or priests, but to train somebody. And so as you walked in the meditation hall every day, there were stained glass images of Jesus on either side of, <laughs> of you. Um,
0: So you felt at home.
2: I felt, I absolutely felt at it home. It, w- it really, and I had one really intense experience. Uh, it Se- seemed like a breakthrough meditative experience at about day four or five in the first uh, retreat. Um, that just felt like kind of coming home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay. Um, yeah, Michael, why do you come on up? Have you, um, have you figured out yet what it means that we were both born Southern Baptist in Oklahoma. That's, that's
2: pretty weird. Uh, what part of Oklahoma? If it's Lawton, <laughs> I'm leaving.
0: It's not Lawton. Okay, good. It's Shawnee, another famous place. Okay, okay. Uh, we have to change some tape. Are we, how are we doing with that? Are we ready? Okay, great. Michael Barnett.
1: Terrific. Uh, we've got lots of great questions uh, from the audience and also from uh, online questioners. You address the Abrahamic religions throughout the book. How do the non-Abrahamic religions fit into the evolution of God?
2: Um, I, I think, you know, in the, in the same way, uh, in the sense that when circumstances are conducive to notions of, uh, of uh, broad compassion and tolerance and so on, you see them. Uh, and as I said, I think Buddhism is a very, is a very good example of that. And, and there's been you know, a little bit of a misunderstanding about this. I don't think the Abrahamic religions are privileged. I did follow the story... Uh, from the days when polytheism was everywhere, that is to say, when when the world was full of hunter-gatherer societies. I followed that story through the evolution of the Abrahamic God um, because, for one thing, whether the the Abrahamic religions can get along is a big question now, and I wanted to look at that. Um, But uh, I, 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 I would imagine the very same moral dynamics applying to any religion... For that matter, to atheists, I, I think when when atheists are in circumstances um, where you know it's it's in their interest to, to get along with people, they're more likely to to think uh, to think kindly of them.
1: That was a softball question. Things oh. are get a little bit more difficult now. Okay. Okay. Uh, you say there is a guiding force. Where is it going?
2: I'm not sure I'd use the term <laughs> guiding force. I mean, I'm pretty sure I don't use the term in the book, uh, but because I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's, a, it's a materialist account of, of history. The material system seems to be going somewhere suggestive of purpose. <clears throat> How or where the purpose was imparted uh, is another question. But where it's going is to this like moral climax of history, in my view. That is to say, either the people of the world uh, get better at, you know, putting themselves in the shoes of of people uh, in very different circumstances, maybe halfway around the world, uh, and in some sense empathizing with those people and realizing that they're people too and deserve decent treatment. Either humanity broadly gets better at that or, uh, you know, you could have, um, you know, true true global chaos, true meltdown. Um, So I think... What I what I think I don't think we've been headed inexorably toward a good or a bad outcome. I think we've been headed inexorably to this moral test, uh, and I and 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 uh, you know I'm I'm not feeling super optimistic at the right. moment. I don't think things have been uh, been going really well.
1: That that raises um, a question from another uh, person in the audience, which is. Uh, is religion then potentially dangerous?
2: Human life is potentially dangerous, and religion is an is an example. But I don't. But I. But a a, a a a an argument, largely implicit in the book, but in some cases explicit, is that religious conflict is not fundamentally about religion. Okay, I've had this argument with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, and Sam Harris and other kind of famous so-called new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins made the statement in uh, in his book *The God Delusion* that if it weren't for religion, there would be no Israel-Palestine conflict, which I think is 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 just wrong. If you know the history, it started out as a dispute about land, wasn't fundamentally religious. Um, and, and in fact, the Zionists who started Israel were not were not no religious, secular, yeah. and, and to the extent that they uh, made reference to the Bible. As, as justification for Israel being their homeland, it was more in the way of, a, of, of an historic, uh, an historical document. In other words, here's the evidence that our people were here. That was the logic. Uh, and, and then once the conflict started, it was, again, at first the Palestinian resistance was fundamentally secular. It's a classic zero-sum game, an argument about land. It brings out the worst in people. Now, as you let these things fester and don't resolve them, they can acquire a religious uh, character. But religion is not the driver of that thing, and I think it's dangerous to look at world affairs uh, with that kind of emphasis on religion as a prime mover because what it leads you to do is throw up your hands and say, "Ah, oh, it's, you know, it's in their scripture. There's no hope. You know, It makes them hate. Um, I think fundamentally the so-called religious conflicts have their origin in political and economic factors, and that is the place to intervene to stop them.
1: Uh, from an online uh, listener uh, sent in advance, uh, from Kevin Pettit from uh, Boulder, Colorado. I am fully aware of how the Christian traditions feel called to clothe the people who are poor, feed people who are hungry, and aid people who have a disability, though the actual practice of these imperatives is at times questionable. Is this true of all monotheistic religions? Also, when would you say that motivation to help others arose? It would seem that the fundamental concern for others stands at odds, in some ways, with successful group development. Why do all three monotheistic faiths remind their followers to care for the poor, the sick, and the destitute?
2: Well, the 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 you know the kind of materialist explanation would be uh, you know if you wanted to not get inspirational about it, you know I tend not to get. <laughs> okay. um, you know, these are social systems that that all have managed to to thrive. You know, these are uh, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam are successful social experiments in the sense that they stayed together as bodies. And um, one thing you need to do is is to congeal at the social level. You do need to take care of people who are less fortunate and so on. Um, I think in all three cases, over time. To their credit, they have extended that impulse beyond the bounds of their religion. Now, you're actually more of an expert on this than I am, I think, Michael, but uh, at least the recent history of this, you've been focusing on this, and I think you find evidence of it in all three traditions, at least in recent times. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's a happy fact that that it has not been confined to the uh, to the communities. I'm sure if you went to Haiti right now, you'd probably find... Um, find some evidence of that that, 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 that charity originating in all three kind
1: of faiths is somehow manifest there. Related, uh, and you spoke about this earlier with Krista, is tolerance enough in a non-zero-sum relationship or do we need more than tolerance? Or does our survival depend on more than tolerance? Um,
2: I guess I'd say tolerance is the prerequisite the further you get beyond that kind of, you know, the better. Um, active empathy is better than tolerance, um, and, and I think, you know, is is practically necessary too. Because uh, you know, we live in a world where, uh, you know, threats to American security originate in social chaos in Africa or in Yemen. Um, so it turns out that there, too, there's a sheerly pragmatic case for taking an active interest in the welfare of other people and, uh, and not, not just stopping at tolerance of them.
1: On a slightly different uh, topic, which uh, concerns more, in, in some sense, to the work you've, you've done here, but also previously on the relationship between religion and science, what parallels and connections uh, – this is from Janice Paulson from Minneapolis – Minnesota, what parallels and connections would you draw between the current spiritual but not religious trend and what is happening in the scientific community?
2: Yeah, I think in a way the kind of the, that, that kind of cliché, spiritual but not religious, which apparently is a thing that more and more people say to describe themselves, um, is... Uh, is in a way uh, an attempt to reconcile with, in some cases, with science. In other words, the idea is, well, if I say I believe in this highly anthropomorphic God, if, if, I, if I'm religious in too old-fashioned a sense, or buy into specific claims of, of revelation, <clears throat> that might not sit well with kind of the modern scientific intelligence. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I think that's a very good question, and, and I think there is a connection between... Between the two, yeah. I
0: think this is kind of related. It seems to me that there's a, a bit of an evolution of science right now. Not necessarily towards scientists believing in God, but science taking some of these religious virtues seriously. You know, hmm. studying empathy, studying Certainly. compassion, studying forgiveness. Yeah.
2: And, I mean, one thing they're finding out is it's in our genes. Yeah. And, and I, this is another, I mean, the whole argument that I would make, if you were willing to sit here for, you know, several months, um, would be, uh, would involve biological evolution as well. I mean, again, straightforward Darwinian version of of biological evolution, materialist, leads you to the conclusion, I think, that, you know, the kind of genes for love were in the cards. They were very likely to show up through the basic dynamics of evolution. I made that argument in uh, a chapter of uh, non-zero, and, um, and and I think you know th- there are you know biologists disagree on how likely various properties were to develop, but certainly the idea that uh, that altruism was a very likely outcome of, of evolution, yeah. uh, that love was a very likely outcome of evolution, and even the ability to the tendency to extend. Your altruism beyond the family and your compassion beyond the family, the idea that those were likely outcomes of evolution is not a not a crazy idea. There are biologists who disagree, uh, but it wouldn 't get you expelled from from the Church of Darwin to say it right.
1: How does the evolution of God relate to the evolution of women rights and standing in society?
0: Uh,
2: you know my argument. I, when, I, when I talk about moral progress, I'm talking about really just a single dimension of it mainly, which is I'm focusing on tolerance and compassion across ethnic bounds, national bounds, religious bounds. You could almost think of it as a geographic extension of the compass <coughs> of compassion. So some things I don't especially get into are things uh, y- you know, like gender. Um, I, mean, I mean, I guess if you were to ask me, what would I see as the uh, the origin of uh, of the women's rights movement and the extension of rights to women, um, you know, and the the extension of the vote to women, and so so on? Um, it would be a, a kind of a different set of dynamics. On the other hand, it does seem to be uh, kind of global. I mean, I personally see the forces afoot that have that have led to that. Uh, in first, in kind of the Western world, I personally think are at play in the rest of the world, but it's a, it's kind of a different. I, I, I think I should have just start at the beginning said I don't have anything very illuminating to say, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad I uh, I was able to establish such a firm foundation for the assertion that I have nothing illuminating to say.
1: But you did it very well. Thank you. <laughs> um. What do we gain by attributing a direction and purpose to the unknown answers to the greatest questions well
2: that's interesting because you know some people don't care whether there's a purpose and um, and they are able to have lives that they think uh, that they consider spiritual without that and maybe the reason i 'm so hung up on this purpose question is because I was brought up a Southern Baptist, you know when there's a God there's a purpose um, at the same time um I do think there's certainly evidence that, in a more mundane sense at least, people's lives are more meaningful to the extent that they feel part of a purpose. You know, it can be part of a basketball team. It can be part of, 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 of a business that's, that's thriving and everyone's excited about it. But people do need purpose. I, 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 You know, I have been told that not everyone needs a sense of higher purpose or transcendent purpose, and fine, you know, I wish them well. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't totally kind of get certain alternatives to this. I mean, I, I, I have a friend who's very energized by the fact that, you know, some of the elements in stars are some of the elements that make us up. So we are stardust, you know. Some, some of you may have heard this. And this gives her tremendous spiritual sustenance. I totally don't get it. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't do it for me. But what, what does it for me doesn't do it for her. So... We're both doing okay.
0: You know, I had a lot of fun reading your first book, Three, God, Three, Three Scientists scientist and, and Their, their Gods. gods. Well, God
2: bless you. There aren't many people who can say they have done that. I
0: have. And, and, you know, and I just want to bring it up here because it's kind of related to the first uh, scientist who you talk about is absolutely fascinating, uh, Edward Fredkin, mm-hmm. and who essentially thought, believes that God is thinks of God as a computer programmer, the cause and prime mover of, every, of everything. And you, you have a statement of him. He said, I don't believe there is a God. I'm not an agnostic. I'm just in a simple state. I don't know what there is or might be. But on the other hand, what I can say is it seems likely to me that this particular universe we have is a consequence of something which I would call intelligent." And, I mean, that's not quite neutral. That's not quite completely no. disinterested. But it struck me that from my conversations with scientists across the years, that seemed to be, I think, a place a lot of scientists end up in. It, it's just not the burning question for them needing to pin down what that intelligence is no. or what its purpose is or whether you would call it God or not.
2: No. Um, and that, that's, I had forgotten that particular quote. But, yeah, he had this idea that the universe itself is best thought of as a computer algorithm specifically a cellular automaton <clears throat> um, and, and so kind of like me except I'm, I'm dealing more at the organic level biological evolution cultural evolution he's dealing at the physical and largely inanimate level but kind of like me he says you know it just seems to be something that was set up to do something
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I have a question that actually follows up on an earlier conversation this is from Martha Conant from Fort Collins, Fort Collins Colorado we're realizing the vast gulf between what Bible scholars know and what members of the congregation know about the Bible. I well, saw
0: this question. They're reading your book, and they're, as they're reading the evolution of God, they're realizing also this
1: disconnect again. Do you have any suggestions for shrinking the gap, for ways to tell the story of faith so that the focus is on the truths it conveys rather than whether or not it is factually true?
2: Well, I don't think I'm the guy to come to for that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean... She'd kind of like another book, it sounds like.
0: <laughs> um, well, no, uh, here's, here's a way I think I would f- ask the question. What is the challenge, uh, you know, what, uh, this is not exactly the same question, but what um, is the challenge that you see arising for religious people and institutions out of what you have presented in this book?
2: Well, I think, you know, uh, if you're going to take science seriously, uh, the the challenge is to reconcile your religion with, with science. Um, and I mean, one question is, what at a minimum do you have to have to call it religion, right? There, there, there's, a, uh, there's a quote uh, in, in the book from William James who says, religious belief is the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme interest lies in harmoniously aligning ourselves with that order, and I argue that that if that 's religion, then there 's a sense in which i 'm religious on the other hand that's that 's pretty abstract if you compare it to the specific theological beliefs of say christianity and um, you know it's it 's tough I mean Christians have taken very different paths to trying mm-hmm. to to reconcile, um, I guess and for me, the question is at what point do you quit calling it Christianity in that case? I mean, if, uh, what if you concluded that, well, okay, um, Jesus wasn't kind of literally the Son of God? I mean, if you went as far as I, if you accept my story, uh, Jesus was just uh, an old fashioned apocalyptic preacher. Then he died, and the way his followers made sense of his death happened to launch this huge religion. Um, you know, can you buy into that and still uh, adapt Christian belief to a point where you still call yourself a Christian? I mean, uh, some Christians would absolutely say no. So, some, I think, say yes.
0: So do you not see anymore would you no longer see the value of this church in Colorado, this Methodist church? taking the Bible seriously? Or do you see a new way that maybe um, it could be read uh, for its value? And I think this is the question. Beyond taking apart what's, what really happened or what might have happened or what might not have happened or what was real, says more about the people writing it than what God was doing.
2: Um, I guess what... Uh You know, I guess I would say that even I am saying, and I'm not a Christian. Even I am saying that uh, that it's not crazy to think that the more laudable parts of the Bible, the part they're focusing on anyway, we're all kind of forgetting anyway, the part of Deuteronomy that says, "Go commit genocide on my behalf." Um, but the laudable parts of the scriptures in all traditions, I'm I'm saying it's not crazy to think of them as manifestations of divine. Uh, of something divine. So um, to that extent, you could say uh, focusing on the scripture, um, even by the lights of somebody like me, um, you know, makes make makes sense uh, and, and makes sense as a, as a form of worship, I, I guess. I'm just thinking this through on the fly. I don't know how <laughs> much of this I'll, I'll, I'll stand by tomorrow, but yeah. uh, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, and um, it's a challenge that, you know, kind of well-educated people are serious about science are engaging, and, you know, I think some of them will manage to still call themselves Christians, and others will, will, will say, well, it's not the word I'm going to use anymore, because I think all these religions are on the same path, and none is, is privileged in its validity, um, so I'll just call myself religious or something. I don't know. Or spiritual.
1: Right, right. Uh, Again, from, uh, from online. William Lowe from Wilmette, Illinois. As a teacher at a parochial Jesuit high school, I hear a lot of immature adolescent concepts of God, but I'm not completely sure what a mature idea of God might be. The idea that emerges from Psalms may come close, but I'd be interested in your opinion.
2: Um. Well, I guess, uh, I mean, one thing that I would say a, a mature conception of God does not involve is the idea that God is focused on your own interests to the exclusion of other people's interests. So, you know, that that, that God wanted, you know, that this team won the football game because, you know, you've, you've heard the post-game interviews. Um, the... Uh, Maybe you could make a case with New Orleans in the Super Bowl, actually. But, but that's a special. You're doing this in Minnesota, <laughs> so yeah. it's a bad... Oh, yeah, you guys are just getting here. over a tough, a very tough... Uh, well, for me, of course, I still have memories of the, the, uh, the Ice Bowl when, when, when Bart Starr, uh, you know, did the quarterback sneak to the disadvantage of the Dallas Cowboys. And called, so the closest I could get to revenge is having a former Green Bay quarterback whose name sounds kind of like Bart Starr. Bart Starr, Star, yeah. Not get to the Super Bowl, but I did not wish that. I did not. W- I did not wish that. Um,
0: but you're saying it may be part of the moral the
2: order. Mor- yeah. The um, right. Do we have to get back to God? This. I think. I think. Th- I think they were starting to get into it. The, 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 um, the, uh, you know, that's one thing I would say is letting go, and it's hard. I mean, because and, and you know. Uh, The secular equivalent of that is, even if you're not religious, just letting go of the idea that you're more important than everyone else. We are designed by natural selection to think we're more important. That's what animals do, you know, (laughs) is they're machines for getting their genes into the next generation. And obviously, a process whose criterion of design is that is going to instill each animal with a sense that it's special, and we all... Uh, and, 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 and in the slightest ways, we all go around following that, uh, that assumption all the time. You know, When you're trying to flag down a taxi and the person next to you and you're trying to ra- you know, raise your arm higher than them, implicit in that, in a way, is the idea that it's more important that you catch the cab than that they catch the cab. It's not a tremendously immoral thing to do. I'm not saying that, you know, but to try to catch a cab. But there, in all kinds of subtle ways... We uh, we privilege ourselves about others, among above others, without realizing it, and, um, and to some extent, you have to do that to get get by life. I mean, my job is to raise my family, you know, and society works better when somebody thinks that way. That that's okay, but but there are all these kinds of unconscious bias we have toward our own interests, and I think. If you get beyond that, you're making moral progress. And if your conception of God helps you get beyond that, that's a more mature conception of God.
0: And I um, also just in terms of, I think, imagining God, because um, that was a very purpose-oriented question. The, what's the purpose of God? Um, you know, you, 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 you talked about Tillich's idea of God as the ground of being. I mean, is that something that resonates with you? If you that was, I, I, want to I don't, I don't
2: know enough about Tillich to say much more than you've said. It uh-huh. was my example of, a, of a, a conception of God that has gone so far to accommodate a scientific worldview that some people accuse it of being basically atheism. So a little, a little like what I said about pantheism. You know, if God mm-hmm. is the universe, what what is added by adding? You know, just renaming the universe God. You're, you're, you're i 'm um, not making that criticism of Tillich, but the criticism has been made that that uh that that 's a conception of god that 's so abstract that it does it doesn't have um, you know it doesn 't have force for people and and maybe doesn 't even qualify as a truly religious assertion
0: mm-hmm. Do you have any metaphors or words language images that? that are there for you when you think about this, if you take this word God seriously?
2: Um, well, what's I'm trying to think? Uh, metaphors. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually, you know, I, uh, although I gave up my Southern Baptist faith and my Christian faith, I actually, the residue of it is so strongly with me that I live my life with kind of this image of this guy in the sky passing judgment on me. I mean, that's, that's the form that my conscience takes to this day. Uh, that's, I'm not saying that's what, you know, God is if there's a God, but, uh, you know, in some ways it works. And, I do, and, and in the book I do have this kind of afterword that's really right. meant seriously, that... Um,
0: what is God anyway or something? Well, that-
2: well it, it's... Uh, I forget what I, what I called it, which is not a good sign, I guess. Um, oh, by the way, what is God? Yeah. Um, but the argument is that even if God is not a personal being, thinking of God as a personal being may be a valid belief in somewhat the sense that it is valid to conceive of electrons the way we conceive them. Okay, so what I mean by that is this... Quantum physics is showing us that the kind of textbook, you know, idea of an electron, little, little ball, you know, doesn't hold up ultimately. Like, uh, in quantum physics, electrons start behaving in really weird ways that literally defy, you know, certainly common sense logic. They just, it just doesn't make sense. And there are some scientists who will say, look, I don't think electrons really exist, okay? It's useful, to think of them as existing. It's useful to build computers with that image in mind of an electron, but I don't think they really exist. And I, and I, and I said, you know, in a certain sense, well, in other words, what they're saying is, the way we think of an electron is as close as we can get to whatever an electron is, given the constraints on the human ability to conceive of things. After all, we weren't designed to think of subatomic physics accurately. That's not what natural selection built us for. Well, natural selection also didn't build us to conceive of some source of the moral order that may be in some sense outside of the universe. So it may be that when we think, you know, it did, natural selection did equip us to think about other animate beings as the source of things. Um, And so it may be that when people think of God as a personal thing, that's as close as you can get given the constraints on human cognition and maybe it's not something you should apologize for because, you know, you're doing the best you can with very limited equipment. Um, And if it works, I mean, to me, the the, the test of a conception of God is what kind of person does it turn you into?
0: Hmm. Um, Just one last question uh, to bring this closer to the ground, um, and talk about the context of ideas and conversation and debate that your book weighed into again, which, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by how quickly in our culture in this last five, six years, well, a few decades, if you want to start there, we've had kind of a thesis, antithesis, synthesis, where religion rose to the surface. I'm talking especially about American politics, mm-hmm. and then in a different way, religion rose to headlines after 9-11. And, uh, and the primacy of religion was asserted by some really strident voices. Um, and then you had this outburst of what were called the new atheists, who were uh, quite strident themselves, but expressing some pent-up frustration that mm-hmm. was understandable. Um, and I think that your work is part of a next phase that we're going into, which is this synthesis. Um, I guess I'm asking you if you think that there's kind of an <laughs> <like> evolutionary <laughs> capacity of our public dialogue to move beyond, you know, point-counterpoint, we have to fight about this. Religion and science writ large would be part of it, or religion and reason. Um, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by how there are lots of new conversations, not just uh, across traditions, but across the religion across divides of belief, non-belief, or not even by categories, boundaries. And I think that your work also speaks to that and provides some constructive material for that.
2: Well, I'm, I hope you're right. That's a flattering way for my work to be described. Um, the, uh, I, I do think uh, there... You, 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 Parts of 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 the dynamics of an ultimate, I guess you could say sympath- synthesis, are at work in the sense that I do think there's a, even among atheists there's a little bit of a backlash against the new atheists.
0: Right, right.
2: Um, I think you know some of the new atheists uh, started to take on some of the characteristics of the religious fundamentalists that they deride. Um, in the sense of, you know, one distinction between a new atheists and an atheist is the new atheist. I think this is... You know, we're talking Christopher definition.
0: Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, they feel a need
2: to proselytize. Um, it's not enough to accept that you have your truth and they have theirs. They, they, they want to, to convert. I, I think that's a fair description of the temperament. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, atheists who, 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 are, who are reacting negatively to that um, and, and just see it as being counterproductive in various... Ways, I I think, you know, I would never tell Richard Dawkins not to say whatever's on his mind and preach atheism if he wants to, but I I do think that um, in some ways he's not helping the job of people on, say, a Kansas school board who, who want to keep Darwin in the classroom. I mean, if the world's most famous expositor of Darwinian theory is one of the world's most fire-breathing atheists. That's kind of a political problem for the person at the local school board who's trying to convince people that evolution is not necessarily a threat to to religion. And again, I'm not saying he should keep mum about it because of the political consequences, but I think just in explaining why I do think there's a little something of a backlash underway um, and
0: were you surprised in the reaction to your book or the conversations that happened around it in this regard?
2: Um, well, the, 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 the two main kinds of blowback I got from atheists and from fairly traditional Christians were not, was not surprising. Um, you know, there are always parts you wish had gotten more attention, but you take what you can get and, mm-hmm. you know, got
0: attention. Maybe the constructive conversations are happening in that Methodist church in Colorado. I was just at a Methodist church. Not on church. The pages Like last the Sunday, I sat Times. with a
2: bunch of people at a Methodist church who had read the book, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so there, there is some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I'm I'm almost surprised and heartened by the number of uh, Christians who are interested in who are being very open minded about it.
0: Okay, Robert Wright, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, thank you all for coming.